So, um, is there anything anybody would like to mention from your studies in this book today? Um, for Honest Evangelism, whether chapter 1 or from chapter 2. Is there anything that stuck out to you that you'd like to bring up? And last week we talked significantly about the pain line and how there's a, there's a point in the conversation or whatever the evangelistic experience where you recognize, wow, if I cross this line, it's gonna, there's going to be some repercussions. This person's going to get angry. What I'm about to say is, you know, could cause a problem here. This rebuke or just saying something that I know that they're not going to receive well. We're going to run into that. It's called the pain line. <clears throat> or you can sense it. It's, a, it's almost like you're diving over the edge into this abyss of awkwardness or hostility. And that pain line keeps a lot of us from saying the things that need to be said. Uh, because you're the one there. You are the one who has the truth. Who else is going to tell them? Um, and if we don't cross that pain line, then that person doesn't get to hear what they need to hear. And the pain line subverts our attention. And a lot of reasons why a lot of people keep things light and fluffy. God loves you. Everything's good. Just God will make your life better. Because everybody wants to hear that kind of stuff. But they don't want to hear the things about, you need to follow Jesus. You need to leave behind the things that you're involved in and go after Jesus. People don't want to hear that kind of message. People don't want to hear Jesus is the only way. You have to choose him or you have no hope. People don't want to hear that. And whatever else, there's a lot of conversations, perhaps family members and friends, where we're conversing about something that's personal. And that personal subject creates a pain line that says, if I bring this up, it's going to hurt me and them, probably. Um, but often we don't, we will not, you know, true devotion comes through, comes through breaking through that pain, like that butterfly has to break out of that chrysalis. Um, um, that baby has to come through that birth canal. It's said that the baby probably goes through more pain than the mother does going through that birth canal. But that's part of entering into the new life is that painful decision and when we try to make it soft and fluffy and not awkward and not painful, well, we remove a lot of what the gospel really is. It's an affront to the natural man. Uh, look at, so we're going to be on, this is number 11. Um, look at 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. This wasn't really a question. This is just something for us to read and consider. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. If somebody would like to read that. If you be followers of that, of that which is good, but, and if you suffer for righteousness, say, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of you a reason of hope, that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Good. <clears throat> oh, wait a minute, have one more. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer well doing, than for evil doing. Mm -hmm. 
In this verse 15, that says, Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and in fear. Now this verse is often used by apologetic institutions to um, kind of talk about, we have to, a lot of people interpret this as, I need to know everything about everything. So that no matter what questions people ask me, I have an answer. So this verse can often make us feel bad because I don't know everything about everything. And a lot of people ask me questions that I don't really know the answer to. And uh, that will always be the case. You know, people are still asking professors questions that they don't have answers to, and they've devoted themselves to studying and finding the answers. But this does not mean you need to always be ready to give answers to any question that anybody asks you. What is this verse saying? It says, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you believe this? That's what it's saying. Why do you believe this? You know, this is absurd. Why do you believe this? This doesn't make any sense. Why do you believe this? That's more or less what this is getting at. It's not saying you need to know everything about everything so that you always have an answer when there's a question. No, the question that you should have an answer to is, why have you claimed this? Why is this so special to you? That's the, that's the question that you should know the answer to. You should know why you're saved. You should know why you believe what you believe. Why have you chosen Jesus? Why did you make that decision? You should have an answer to that question. So if you want to write down a note, if you hear that and you're like, wait, well, maybe I don't really have a good answer for that question. I haven't really thought about it in a while. Maybe you should go home today and kind of learn that because this is what he's saying. You should have an answer to that question. Why did you get saved? Why was this attractive to you? Why did you decide to make this decision? Go ahead. I think it's so important that every person uh, uh, go over their testimony mm-hmm. and have a testimony that they can give mm-hmm. to someone. And you know, a lot of times people will watch your walk, watch your talk, and if you are, uh, if you have a position or a job somewhere where you have a lot of people, mm-hmm. people will come up to you. And they'll, they'll ask you, like, why are you so calm when everyone right. you know, and you're able to give them your testimony. So mm-hmm. I think you need to really have a testimony. Our yeah. pastor in South Carolina, he's got a way about him mm-hmm. that in five minutes he'll be able to give his testimony. To yeah. He'll look for the biggest guy in the room. Right. And say, there's a fight going to break out. He said, you're on my side. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they'll start talking to him. And, you know, and before you know it, he's given his testimony. Mm-hmm. That's so important to have that. Right. Right. I've been told before that you should you should both you should be able to wax eloquently for you know an entire conversation about the hope that's in you, but you should also have an elevator speech. <laughs> the time that you're in an elevator, with the one or two minutes, you should be able to present the gospel and why you know your your testimony. You should be able to have it wrapped up into two minutes, and you should also be able to talk to somebody in an extended conversation. <laughs> you know. So. He's worked on people for 20 years that finally get saved. I mean, I know we have a kid in our church that he used to take fishing all the time. And now uh, JC um, has cancer really bad. He's coming every Sunday and mm-hmm. just really uh, just doing well. And Pastor didn't really give up on him when he was 20 years mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And that's really where a lot of people do find the hope in Christ is because somebody didn't lose hope. And that's really what we find a lot in Scripture is it's not just about the message, it's also about the messenger. We shouldn't give up on people. We shouldn't be arrogant and judgmental and argumentative. We shouldn't be 
these things. It's not just about the message, but the message it comes from us. People who have been born again. People who represent Jesus Christ. So that's where the message is coming from. And that has just as much to do about a person's responsiveness to the gospel as the message itself oftentimes. Um, the rare, the, the raw gospel message, the truth is there and people get saved from it. But more often than not, I believe, people get saved when it's somebody who has chosen to love them has brought them to Jesus Christ. Because you have that person who's representing Jesus, who's coming with the hands and the feet of Jesus to them, serving them, sacrificing for them, just loving them, not losing hope, not giving up on them, not being this harsh slave master saying, repent, 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 well, even though we should bear a message of repentance, but not just harshly coming down, looking down on somebody. No, it's about this, the, well, the message of Jesus is a message of welcome. It's saying, come to me, because I've already come to you. I've sacrificed everything in coming to you. Now come to me. I think the key is what you said, is to love them. Mm-hmm. It's to learn how to love people and to be able to love them in such a way that you, you love them uh, so that they come to church. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so interesting because so many people are searching today. They're searching mm-hmm. for friendship, for just someone to recognize them. Mm-hmm. And people go by the wayside all the time. They get involved in all kinds of liberal, whatever, yeah. churches and stuff, because no one, you know, you're afraid to love them, even though right. they don't look like you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you got to learn how to love people. Right. And really, it's, and I think it's biblical, but true love is seen when you're really loving somebody who is very much unlike you, because yeah. that's really the nature of God's love. Marty recently saw a man that came to church on Easter through different circumstances, and he, um, Marty was watching when Pastor gave the invitation to come forward. This man started crying, and Marty just went and talked to him. He said, would you like to go forward? And the man said he, he would, and Marty said, I'll go with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's really sick now, too, another man that we know that's really ill. But um, that doesn't happen often. I'm, no, I'm not saying that that yeah. happens every week, but... He just, he got baptized in the ocean with his wife, and uh, they're doing really great. They're coming every, every time. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's discipleship. Go and make disciples, not just go and say stuff. Go and make disciples. Coming alongside of building people. That's the Great Commission, really. <clears throat> uh, we could talk more about this passage, but look at Second Corinthians 4, 11 to 18. We'd like to read those verses. Second Corinthians four, eleven to eighteen. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, <clears throat> that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up us with Jesus and will present us with you. 
<clears throat> for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many men, may diminish, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, <clears throat> yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far greater, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hmm. And that ties in with what we were talking about earlier today. And this is a verse that talks about really the real pain line. <laughs> the pain line where things get so bad that they may even take your life. And that seems a little unrealistic to us sometimes because we don't really face that in our scene. But many Christians do face that in their scene. And on November 4th, in the bulletin, it's in there, but we're going to be participating in a National Day of Prayer for the, through the Voice of the Martyrs program. And we're going to be praying for Christians around the world in many, many countries where the government, the people... Family members, they're all hostile to the gospel. And you can be killed, and nobody will turn, and nobody will even care that you got killed. You know, murder, sin, needs to be punished. But if you're a Christian, nobody cares if you get murdered <laughs> in some of these countries. It's just the way things should be. Christians should be killed. They have, no, they have no place here. Millions of Christians live in this type of environment. And we need to see the reality of this. And we also need to look within ourselves. What if we were in that environment? Would we still stand for Jesus? Or would we be proven to be a goat? Who would gladly give up the name of Jesus just to, just to retain this life that I'm living right now? Just to let things just be normal rather than having everything stripped away from me. And that's why he says in verse 18, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And what does he say in verse 17? Our light affliction. A light affliction? Do you know what happened to Paul? <laughs> he was not lightly afflicted. He was severely afflicted. He was even killed once and brought back to life in the scriptures. He was beaten to death, left outside of the camp. Every, the whole town saw that he was dead, threw him outside the camp. He got bit by a snake. He should have died. He died. He should have died several times, but yet he didn't. But yet he's considering this. But yet my, our light affliction. <laughs> Why would he call it a light affliction? He did his math. He compared it. Yeah, there you go. From the math teacher. He did his math. small amount of right. what he's doing here. Exactly. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It was, he could consider these things light affliction because that's not what he was focusing on. That wasn't his focus. And when he says in verse 13, I believed and therefore I spoke, and we also believe and therefore speak, he's quoting Psalm 116.10 where the whole verse says, I believed and therefore I spoke, spoke quote unquote, I am greatly afflicted. That's what the psalm says. He's talking about affliction when he says this. And Paul is not um, 
He doesn't think that he needs to keep his affliction a secret. Rather, he's using it as an example for these people. Look at what I'm going for, for the sake, through for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because glory is worth far more. And he's encouraging the people with these words. Don't stop from saying the things that need to be said just because it might turn into affliction. Who cares if it turns into affliction? These people need the gospel. You have a glory that's ahead of you that is incomparable to the suffering that you're going through right now. So speak. I mean, I like, you know, it's, it seems like you would preach a good sermon to, to say this. I believed and therefore I spoke, so we believe and therefore speak. I believe the gospel, so I have to speak about it. That's technically not what the psalm was talking about, but it's true nonetheless, right? If we believe it, we should speak it. Not concerned for our own welfare, but concerned for this person's eternal life, concerned for the eternal glory that's ahead of us. Anything else you'd like to mention? Okay, number 12 on this chapter 1 sheet. While much of the world grows in antipathy, there's also a growing blank. It's antipathy meaning hostility. The world is growing hostile, but there is also a growing hunger. There's also a growing hunger in the world. As people realize that two things are not satisfying. What two things? Secularism and materialism. Secularism being kind of the root of God is dead. (laughs) God is not, you know, this religion, religiosity, God, the, the idea of God, it's not really applicable to modern society. We've evolved past the need for God. People just believe in God to make themselves feel better because they're too weak to take care of themselves. This is like the mantra of secularism. You don't need God. You can take care of yourself. Humanism. You could call it in in a way. And materialism. It's It's just the world around us. That's all that matters. Don't worry about heaven and hell. There's no eternal life. Evolution is how we came. Yeah, we'll return to the dust, but, you know, that's just life. We live and we die and we do the best we can. Try to be happy. Materialism. Secularism and materialism are, are, uh, I mean, it's really two big words that really uh, just describe natural man. (laughs) The way we naturally tend to want to live. Self-reliant, self-fulfilling. But people people are realizing that these things aren't really all that satisfying. It doesn't actually work. So, there's also a growing hunger in the world looking for, well, what, what's the alternative? If secularism and materialism aren't working, well, what's the alternative? What does work? And that's where it's not that we necessarily coddle people with the gospel, but this is where we can show them that it's not just news, but it's good news. It's good It's good for them. God has good for them. I mean, he's defeated sin. He's forgiving of our sins, our trespasses. He renews our minds. He renews us. He regenerates us. He brings us to life. That's good news. He's with us always. We know that in him all things work together for good. That's good news. And we can show that to the people 
who are looking. There are people that are looking. A lot of people are just okay. I'm fine. I don't need anything else. I'm satisfied. I have fulfilled myself. I am fulfilling myself. There's a lot of people like that. And those are the hardest people to lead to the gospel. Truly. They might pray a prayer with you. But only because it just feels like something good to do in the moment. Like we talked about. It's just, yeah, Jesus can be another idol on my shelf of self-fulfillment. But the people who realize they're not working. I'm broken. I'm miserable. I'm lost. Those are the people that we can show this is good news for you. Yeah, secularism and materialism, they're not working. They don't satisfy, really. Here, let me show you the grand alternative. The reality. It's not just an alternative, but this is reality. Number 13. If we do not cross the pain line, we will not find the what? Spirit's power. I mean, that's a, that's a good answer to the question. We will not find the Spirit's power. If you're never going out working in the name of Jesus, you're never going to know His power. Why would He give you His power when you're not doing anything worthy of His power? A lot of us don't really believe the Spirit works among us because we're not working among us. But what else? They, they're not going to find who in particular? Jesus. And from the chapter, these are that's the right answer as well. If we don't if we don't cross the pain light, we're not going to find these hungry people. So that we can give them Jesus, so that they can know Jesus. We must cross the pain line to really get into the conversation where you see their real need, where you see they're hungry, where you see where they are feeling weak, and then you can speak to them. You can remember Ago when I was stationed at the Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, we had um, we started a bus ministry there, bringing kids to come to church. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this trailer fort that was right behind the church, and it was it must have been 50 trailers there, and they were filled with itinerant Hispanic workers that mm-hmm. picked the fields there. Yeah, and no one would go there after those kids. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the pastor about it, and I said, Pastor, you can probably fill up this church with the kids that are back there. And he told me, he says, Marty, go get them. Yeah. <laughs> we pulled the bus in there, and you talk about people that were needy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have no doors on their trailer. They had a piece of wood there with a chain and a lock on it. Mm-hmm. And they locked themselves in at night just to keep people out from breaking in. Yeah. And we go there, and we pull those kids out of those trailers, and the beer bottles and the wine bottles and get them on the bus and get them to church. And there was a great need there for the gospel. And it seems mm-hmm. like people that are poor, uh, that are uh, that don't have have anything, mm-hmm. uh, will accept the Lord as they realize where they're at. And that's mm-hmm. where you got to bring a lot of uh, the people that are self-righteous that uh, have a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's so hard for them, like you said earlier, for them to let go of themselves mm-hmm. and accept Christ. Um, but you have to bring them down to that level where they realize that they're really nothing without right. Him. Right. No, oh, yeah, and the poor. I mean, that's why Jesus says, I have come to bring good news to the poor. Because <laughs> they, they, already, they already know what it's like to come to the end of themselves. Yeah. It's just the way they live, at the end of themselves. 
not always the truth. There are a lot of poor people that you'll run into who are arrogant and full of themselves, self-sufficient. But if you're going to find the hungry, you're going to probably find them more likely among the poor. In India, like, it's reported that the untouchables, the lower classes, the most receptive to the gospel. Yeah, right. Yep. The abused, the broken, the sick, the lame. <laughs> And that's really who you see Jesus ministering to most of the time while he was on the earth. Anything else in chapter 1 that you'd like to bring up? Because that's the end of the sheet. We can move on to the first you know, few, couple of chapter 2. Okay. So moving on to chapter 2. Page 25, we see three truths that help motivate us to evangelize. What are those three truths, if you were able to fill that in? Three twos that help us help motivate us to evangelize. Go ahead. The glory of Jesus, the guarantee of a new creation, and the grim reality of death. Okay. So if you need a kick in the pants, dwell on these things. The glory of Jesus. And that's really what most of the chapter, I feel like, revolved around. Number one, the glory of Jesus. Jesus is awesome. Jesus needs to be made known. He cannot be hidden. You cannot, hide un- you cannot hide a light under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> right? We need the glory of Jesus to go forth. Jesus must be made much of. You have the guarantee of the new creation. This is good for us. We know that the new creation is coming. And those who are found in Christ get to partake of the goodness of such a new creation. But then there's also the grim reality of death and hell. Do you want to see that person in hell? Are you okay with them just... Going about life as they are, dying, going to hell like it's no big deal. Is that okay with us? Sometimes we live like that. It's just okay that the world is going to hell. It's okay. Hmm, give me some more pizza. <laughs> so what is glory? Now this is kind of open to interpretation a little bit. Tice gives us a little bit of insight on page 26. What is glory, number two? Any ideas? Well, I didn't read it, but glory would belong to God. Okay, so glory is God's. But what is the glory of God? Or the glory of something in particular? If somebody gives glory to something, why are they giving that person glory? What is that glory? Because the book just it, it explained it. I mean, just in such a neat manner to, to read it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, you can read it if you want. This is glory. It's, it's a religious value word. And I make no apology for using it. When it comes to Jesus, no other words will do. The glory of something is its weight, its unique worth. It's what sets something apart in an immutable way. The glory of the sunset is its color. The glory of a lion is its strength. The glory of a master craftsman is its skill. And in Jesus, we see the nature and presence of God blood out. God's glory is almost too much to be taken in. When Peter, James, and John caught glimpse of it, of it as Jesus was transfigured in blazing white on a mountaintop, Peter spluttered rubbish. He was so frightened. When John saw the risen Jesus in his glory on at Patmos, he said, I fell at his feet as though dead, like he was passed out. 
This is the glory of God seen in Jesus. And Jesus himself said, it was displayed most clearly of all, not on the mountaintop or in John's vision, but at the cross. And he must be high and lifted up. Even on the cross, he was glorified for all to see. His sacrifice was being made manifest. One of the, if you're going to use one other ulterior word to glory, it would be manifestation. The manifestation or the representation of somebody's power, beauty, or magnificence. It's that, it's that inerrant nature that is on display in some way, seen, to be wondered at. Right. Right. Nature is very much like that. <laughs> like God's glory. It's yeah. unexplainable when you feel it and right. you know it. It's it's unexplainable. Yeah. They talk about the Shekinah glory of God and how it's magnificent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's totally awesome. Yeah. And in our response is very much a response. A glory like a glory of a sun a sunset. It's not glory if it's not manifest to someone who's responding to it. You know? In in a sense, it is its own glory. But in in the other sense, the glory of God demands a response from those to whom it is being made manifest. When it is before us, if it does not delight us, if it does not overwhelm us, perhaps we're not really seeing the glory of God. Perhaps we're not really glorifying God if He is not overwhelming us with His glory. Like when you got saved. Such a thing you want to tell somebody, it's, it's inside of you that mm-hmm. you just can't, you know. Right. It's, it's, right. I can remember as a little girl just needing to go home and tell my mom and, and to tell her, you know, what mm-hmm. happened to me. Yeah. And I think that the church has gone awry in a sense that it, you know, there, to some degree it was good that when the charismatic movement was coming out, that churches kind of parted ways from, from those who were going that direction. In according to its falsehood. But I think with, along with our parting from charismatic movements, um, we also parted ways with any ties to sensationalism. But the glory of God is sensational, and we should feel free to sense it, to love it, to be overwhelmed by it, and not be afraid to have emotions. <laughs> I think sometimes we're afraid of having emotions because we don't want to be charismatics. You know, charismatics get some things right, and we get some things wrong, okay? The glory of God is sensational. We should, we're made to sense it, not just with our knowledge. Oh, you've got to glorify God by obeying His Word. That sounds very dull and dry, even though it's true. But to glorify God and to bask in His glory, it's sensational. And it is the root of true, loving obedience, does that make sense? Is that sensational? <laughs> so what is glory? We could talk about what is glory all day. Um, but let's just do a couple more points here. Let's just do three and four, and then we will be done for the day. First Samuel 4.21, what is God's glory associated with? If anybody can tell us what that's all about. First Samuel 4.21, what is God's glory associated with? 
glory is departed from Israel mm -hmm. because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. So what was the glory of God associated with? The ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was not God, but is a manifestation of God. That's how his glory was revealed to the people through the Ark of the Covenant. That's why Ichabod was named, because Israel used it improperly, thinking that if they just take this Ark of the Covenant into battle, they're sure to be victorious. But guess what? In their pride, and so, and they were defeated, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. Um, and this is when Eli died, <laughs> tipping over and breaking his neck. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to know the whole story. But the point is, you know, the point of this question is to show us that God's glory is a representation, is very often just a representation of Him. Um, something that, that's why Solomon made the temple to be immensely beautiful with thousands and thousands of pounds worth of gold spread everywhere. And all these beautiful artifacts just in here and the ornamentalism in the building. Because he wanted to display the glory of God. Was the temple God? No. But it was the display, the representation, the manifestation of God's glory as man might produce. Does that make sense? So in a way, we can glorify God in how we represent Him. We glorify God not just in obeying, but in also how we represent God to people. If we don't represent God at all to people, then we're not glorifying God. We must make him manifest. He must be made manifest if we're going to say we are glorifying God. Not just... Yeah, what's wrong with... Okay, Okay. so that's a good question. And I'll give... Uh, does anybody want to try to answer that question? <laughs> what's the problem with the golden calf then? It was beautiful. It was made out of gold. It was strong. And I think the key comes down to, okay, so both in Aaron's case, he, the people, he said the same thing as, um, as Jeroboam said when he made golden calves in Dan and Bethel. They both said the exact same thing about their respective golden calves. They said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. They both said that. Aaron said that when he made it, when they were just brought out of Egypt. So this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Come and worship this. <laughs> and so did Jeroboam. When he, was, when he took over the ten, ten other tribes of Israel, he set up the golden calves in Dan and Bethel and said, this is, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Worship, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. Just worship these and you'll be good. So I think the biggest problem is it was that the people worshipped the representations rather than the God whom these things represented. And that's where a lot of problems come. Like, okay, so we have a cross here. Does that make us bad because we have a manifestation of the glory of Christ here on our stage? Are we idol worshipers because we have an idol? <laughs> well, we could be idol worshipers if we worshiped that cross. Or if we would come up and we would touch the cross, hoping that this cross would give us a blessing from God. Thinking that there was power in that representative object. That's idolatry. Glorifying God 
seeing this and bringing glory to God is glorifying God through a representative. Does that make sense? Does that, dif- does that difference make, us, make, make sense? Any questions or any like that? That sounds a little screwy. Because like icons aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. It's like, what do you do with it? Okay? Lots of different denominations have things that they set up, and there are some people who worship those things. People kneel to crucifixes. I don't think that that is right. People pray to crucifixes. No, we pray to God. These things that represent things that God has done are, can be very helpful to us if we lift our glory up to God. Like I personally appreciate, I used to be a wedding photographer, did several weddings in Catholic churches. I appreciate a lot of the ornamentalism in a Catholic church. I appreciate the, the, uh, um, the, the stations of the cross that are painted around the church because it helps me remember what Christ did. But if we worship those things, if we bring glory to these things, bringing the glory down from heaven and letting him rest on these things that are around us, rather than seeing the things that are around us and bringing glory to God, then we are idol worshipers. When we bring the glory down to something here. That's where the, in a lot of Catholics, that's where the works come in. They do the Stations of the Cross. My mother used to do that. Mm-hmm. I say, Mom, where are you going? She said, I'm going to church to do the Stations of the Cross. And I said, what's that? And what they do is they kneel, and they have, have them on the wall, a picture, and she go through that, and she pray the rosary. And it's the works mm-hmm. that they get tied up mm-hmm. with. It's, it's worshiping right. the, the idols instead of worshiping the God. Right. Like the blessing comes from the thing rather than God himself through Jesus. So what is God's, you know, God's glory was associated with the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 4.21, but that wasn't God. It didn't deserve the glory. The, The people went wrong when they said, this Ark will save us if we take it into battle. No, God will save you if you trust in him. The ark wasn't going to save them. God is the one who provides the victory. They went wrong when they started ascribing glory and honor to the Ark of the Covenant. They lost their temple because they thought, well, the temple is here, so God must be with us. So God took away the temple. <laughs> God, I mean, if you look at the, the start of the temple when it came into being, God never even really said that he wanted one. The people wanted to give him one. David wanted to give him a temple. But God was just like, you know what? If you will obey me and walk in my ways... I will place my name in this temple. And just hearing you say that, maybe when the guy touched it, he was touching earthly things mm-hmm. rather than eternal things. Yeah, and he was being disobedient in touching it. Right. Yeah. So it's telling us, don't touch the earthly things, touch the yeah. heavenly Yeah, yeah. That's a good little application for that. Mm-hmm. Keep, your, keep your mind focused on God, not the thing. Right? The thing doesn't matter. God matters. The glory of God matters. I think we should probably wrap it up here, but um, this number one motivation for us to evangelize is we need to make Jesus manifest. He is too awesome to keep a secret. We can enjoy Him, but He is too big for just us to enjoy. We need to make Him known. We need to manifest Him. That is our work. That is our duty. That is our desire. That should be our desire. That God is so great that we have to tell other people about Him. Let's pray and then we can be dismissed.